As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. This week's podcast is brought to you in part by Bill Taylor Enterprises. BTE is a manufacturing, design, and support company that specializes in high-performance automatic transmission assemblies and components for drag racing, off-road, marine, and street performance. Stay tuned to learn more about BTE's tune-up services. everyone and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. All right, welcome to, or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where Big Jed we sometimes talk about Chet Dragon and Johnny Bracket Racer. I have a feeling we're going to talk about Johnny Bracket Racer a lot this week. We are talking all things fling. We are recording this what, less than 48 hours after the conclusion of the 10th annual Fall Fling, the Fall Fling 500K. And uh, that's basically what we're going to dedicate this episode to. We've got a lot of takeaways, a lot of talk, a lot of um, storylines from the fall fling and a little bit uh from across the country and other events as well so big jed you uh, you lived it you lived it on the track you lived it from behind the microphone overall thoughts on one of if not the uh i guess it would be the second largest paying event of the season uh, arguably the most prestigious event of the season certainly one of the biggest races of the year the fall fling yeah, um, amazing event, Luke, for sure. Uh, I think most anybody that was there or watched a significant amount of it would, would agree with that. Uh, it definitely had its share of challenges. 
um, things popping up that, that were unforeseen, that were unique and, and uh, didn't have much precedent set prior to it. So, um, you know, all in all, wonderful event, another extremely good job done by Peter, Kyle, Emily, and the staff. Uh, you know, there was, but again, there was probably a hiccup or two more than they anticipated and some things that they had to battle internally. But um, overall, I, I thought it was a, a huge success. Oh, agree completely. And my expectations for this event were through the roof because I, I just I've been to fling events in the past and I know the show that they put on. I would say by and large, uh, expectations were exceeded from a racing sta- from a racer standpoint. It was my favorite event of the year. Um, it was also, I don't know, it's tough everywhere. Like it just felt like the most competitive event of the year too. Like I got my head kicked in a lot. And I heard a lot of people getting it worse than I got it. Um, But uh, just the level of competition across the board, the organization, awesome event. With that said, um, there's obviously some storylines that we're going to talk about. Um, And as as much as I enjoyed the race, I'm actually going to be critical of a couple of decisions along the way. So it's not like we're – I feel like I'm a diehard supporter of Pete and Kyle and the Fling brand in general. Um, But I don't think – anybody is necessarily above criticism and there's some things that i would like to see done differently so we'll get to that as well we did this a little bit with indie big jen they did like the five big stories from indie i don't know how many we came up with we got some bullet points here um but several talking points from the fling the obvious place to start was the final round of the 500k the main event and the winner one hunter Patton. Uh, Texas racer, younger kid. How how old is Hunter, Jed? That's a great question. Um, I do not know the answer to that, but for some reason, I'm feeling like 22, 23, something like that. But yeah, I was going to guess mid 20s. Mark's probably looking that up right now as we speak. Um, it's actually an, a young guns final, Hunter and, and Matt Dadis, and I'm going to get to Matt a little bit more later because he's had a hell of a, a season. In two weekends. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually had a hell of a season beyond that. Um, but let's stick with Hunter right now as he was the the, the winner. I don't know necessarily, Big Jed, if Hunter Patton is a nationwide was a nationwide household name coming into this weekend, but those within the big dollar bracket racing circle definitely knew about Hunter and his talents. He has been dicing it up pretty good um, on the national scene in the big dollar bracket races for over well for a couple of years now i think we featured him as a who's hot a couple of times he's won some big stuff obviously nothing on this level but i don't think to anybody that's raced around hunter before like it was no shock to see him in a winner's circle on that stage yeah definitely a, a very talented young man that uh, has been fortunate to drive some great equipment and uh yeah luke he's done definitely his share winning producer mark has uh, dropped us a note here on the show notes that uh, Hunter's 24 and for a 24 year old, I think he is, uh, has accomplished a ton in our sport already, you know, tens and twenties these days might uh, get forgotten about with, with what people have in front of them to, to watch at the races, 500 granders, hundred granders, 200 granders. But, uh, I think he's won plenty of those and, uh, shown up on some big stages and, and went deep in the rounds for sure. 
I know he performed extremely well. Maybe a couple of years ago, maybe three at the million, had a a great weekend there. So, yep, uh, yeah, Hunter Hunter very accomplished for a 24 year old young man. The uh, I think what stood out to me most um, from from Hunter's day, and a lot of people point to the final. The the final round was kind of off the rails in both lanes. And maybe we'll get to that a, a little bit later. But I don't think that was indicative of Hunter's performance throughout the day. What will stick out with me, Big Jed, was your post-race interview, your, your, your finish line interview with Hunter, which, by the way, was a really cool touch of the fling. Uh, I was just listening on the PA live at the racetrack, so I don't know what the, the broadcast necessarily felt like. Um, but you had an interview with Hunter where you were asking everybody before they saw the time slip, like, what were you on the tree? What, were you, what happened at the finish line? And I think Hunter was within like a thousandth on both ends. Yeah, he was. He had real good recognition. You know, we uh, to be completely transparent. Now, I didn't give him the numbers, but we would talk a little prior to the camera rolling and the microphone going hot, just to get a feel for what he thought. And you know, he right off the bat, ah, that wasn't good. You know, I I was. Uh, I think I was maybe thirty to forty, and you know, he'd nail it and. And so he had really good recognition of when he performed well and when he didn't. I'm fortunate for him. You know, he got a couple of red lights late that put him over the edge, but uh, obviously that's a that was a huge stage and a lot on the line. And I'm definitely not judging him because I can only imagine what is going through your body and your mind at that time. So, but to to go back to your point yes he he had really good recognition of what was happening on the track yeah and i and that was like that was before he was in the winter circle but that that really stood out to me i was like damn like that's pretty impressive because i it wasn't like it's one thing to do that when the, it drops green and you know like oh god that was really good like that should have yeah. been red but it was a run where he was 19 or 20 and he called it within a couple thousands and i think he held it on the floor to get there four or five thou and this sounds dumb but i think it's harder to recognize what happened at the finish line when you're on the rug than when you're pacing somebody and dictating it i couldn't agree more and for him to say yeah i got there and it was i think his exact words or i got there less than five thou and he took four and you're like whoa like that that is the the hunter patent that i know you know that sure that's why it's no surprise that he's in this winter circle um and the one thing he told me um after the fact, we were talking a little bit Saturday, and this is almost to the point where I almost called him out on it because I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know if anybody's that good, but I believe, but the way he said it, I believe him. Was okay. The, I, I mentioned earlier that the final round was a little bit off the rails in both lanes. Um, it appeared that that Matt Dadas got in a little bit deep initially, um, and then obviously he's red. Well, Hunter nearly got timed out, and to the way that he told the story, he was like, I'm going to get timed out. I need to get in. And his last bump was in a chunk. So then they're both staged thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in deep. Uh, <laughs> Matt hits the tree and, and, and is, it, it, it ultimately goes red. Well, Hunter, like, mashes the button. You know, what a lot of us would do and just don't go red and knows that he's stone late when he lets go of the button. And immediately, I think he said he bumped like two or three times, but he had, Again, this is his telling me the story. Had the presence of mind to watch a tree go down. Now it's true start. So obviously, Dadis leaves and the green light displays. But Hunter says that he watched him leave 
stage lights to green and was like, whoa, I think that's red. And he says, and I just stopped bumping. And he's like, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm going to be stone late, but I'm probably not going to bump it to good anyway. And I don't want to take a chance of bumping it red uh-huh. because, right. And in the end, you know, like that's a lot to, to, to process in a shorter period of time. <laughs> yeah. But I, I can, it's one thing I can stand on the fence and do that. I, I when we watched the final round on Saturday, when Brian Martel went red, when he left, I went, I think that's red. And then it dropped red, but that's from the fence. That's not after I just let go, I'm panicking, bumping that. Like, that's a lot to process, but I believe him. So if that's true, that in and of itself, to have the presence of mind to think through all of that in a second or two is really impressive. Um, and Hunter, so Hunter Patton ends up winning, um, wins the 500K. I actually, the way that I heard that the split went down is one of the best splits in recent memory, like I, I very fair all the way down, still left a lot of money for the final. I thought that was awesome. Um, and <laughs> I, I was watching, I was actually, my, my, my kids had fallen asleep. I, I literally watched the final on my phone, even though I was a hundred feet from the starting line in my motor home. Right. Yep. And so Dadis goes red and, and I think Hunter said he made it to 60 foot before he, he, he shut off. And then he comes to a complete stop somewhere between 330 and the finish line, probably 400 feet, roughly? Around about, yeah. My first thought, Jed, and I don't know if this was his, his instinct or not, my first thought was, he's going to do a 180 and come back in the other lane. Uh, yeah, don't cross that center line. Whatever. Well, that's what I thought, too. I'm like, <laughs> what kind of bleep storm is that going to start, right? Because the race is over, unless you do that. Thankfully, he saved us that debate, because that would have taken up this entire show. He just yeah. kicked it in reverse, went all the way back to the starting line. And the rule on that is you don't have to cross the finish line. Most of us know that. As long as you take the tree, you are the winner. Um, but yeah, uh, let's go down that road for a second. What if, what if, what if, he, what if he kicked it around across the center line? I mean, by rule, Luke, he would have, uh, he would have been the runner-up. How and bizarre would that have been? I, <laughs> that would have been the worst. I, don't, I don't know if I can read Hunter's mind, but I think that was his first instinct. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah. no! Yeah. You know, I, uh, I definitely crossed my mind not uh, as he was backing up because it was pretty clear, you know, fairly quickly that his intentions were to back up. But when he stopped, it was like, yes. what's going on here? Um, uh, thank, thankfully, he just stuck it in reverse and started coming straight back. You know, then I'm thinking, let's make sure all these people get out of the way because I doubt Hunter's watching for obstacles very well right now. So, but. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty cool moment all around. That had he done what we were afraid of, that oh, that would have been a terrible way to to finish second. No doubt, no doubt. Um, okay, so uh, enough about Hunter. We we actually we we had intended to have him on. I think we've got more than enough to cover. And this is typical. This is Hunter Patton fashion as well. I think he let Mark know, like, hey, one of my buddies is broke down. I got to go help him. And I'm going to be in a really bad area where I don't think I'll have service. I think he'd have been more than happy to talk to us, but he literally had more important stuff to do. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. He, he, I think he would have enjoyed being on here and, and talking about it. In the moment, obviously, he was in awe and, and had a lot on him. So I don't think he got to, uh, got to talk about it the way he wanted to in the winter circle. So I'm sure he would like to discuss it some more on the show and, and hopefully we get him on here soon. All right. So Hunter Patton gets the big win. 
we talked a little bit about Matt Datis, who was the runner-up. Matt, another young racer. We get, I'll get Mark looking things up again, but Matt's definitely in his 20s. Yeah. Um, so all, 20, all 20-something final um, for one of the largest paydays in, in racing history. And uh, the, the unique thing, the ironic thing about Matt Datis is that when Gage Birch won the other you know, half million plus dollar to win event, the, the SFG 525, uh, Gage was behind the wheel of a truck that is owned by Matt Datis or the, or the Datis family. So in two weekends, like I don't know the exact details of either split and I don't know what the arrangement was between Matt and Gage, but I think it's safe to say Matt Datis made a whole lot of money in two weekends. Like he's had an awesome season separated from those two events, but those two events would make a career for most of us. And it's all happened at the two largest events ever. He's had a car in both finals. That's impressive. It's amazing. And and his driver rented up a 50, the same event. (laughs) So So life is good for Matt. Like I'm not, don't shed a tear over Matt turning it red in the final. Right? No. And his, you know, his Matt's uh, attitude and outlook is always so good. And, you know, he, he wanted to win. There's no doubt about that, but he was, he was just happy to be there. Um, took it really well and, uh, had a great winter circle runner up interview with him. It, it was typical Matt Dattis, just all around good guy. And if it's any consolation, obviously there is one winner and it's the, the racer that turns on the last wind light, but from round five on, nobody made better runs than Matt Dattis. Matt was on. I agree. Kick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Hunter Patton's the winner. Matt Dattis is the runner-up. Shane Maddox was the lone semifinalist. Um, that's the story number one. You know that you got to you got to start at the top. The second bullet point that I'll get to, Big Jed. What did you think? Uh, we've been through why this had to happen and the 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 format of the event and how it became. A single entry event like no car went down the track more than once per round no driver went down the track more than once per round um this seems like a new idea when in reality we're just turning back the clock like this is the way it was uh everywhere what 25 30 years ago we've gotten away yeah. from it what did you think about the single entry format from a racer standpoint uh, from a racer standpoint i loved it luke you know um i, I would definitely be, be considered your your average guy out there, uh, a guy that uh, doesn't have the the means at all times to double enter every race I go to, or definitely don't have two cars that I can take to the track. I, I can barely fit the golf cart and the, the race car in the trailer. So, um, you know, I, I felt like it was as level and fair as it could possibly be. And uh, although some equipment's better than others, I I, you know, I felt like that gave everybody pretty much equal opportunity. And I, I, I thought it was wonderful. You know, the, the, um, I guess the, the heavy hitters or the, the big buck players that would typically have a couple of shots probably still did with putting someone in. Um, but as far as them being able to go down the track multiple times in a round, uh, that obviously didn't happen, and I felt like it really just leveled the playing field, and um, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I did, too. I, I I am a huge advocate of that format, and I realize 
why we got away from it in years past because we just didn't have the the demand we didn't have the car counts like we had to bring in started with buybacks and then multiple entries and on down the line i think the demand right is there right now to make this work and i just i think it's hard to argue that it's not the most fair format i think it's the most economically friendly format because you just it's expensive enough to run a race like this, but you couldn't ring up just a ridiculous tab by doubling enter, enter, doubling everything, buying back twice, you know, on down the line. Um, like, I'm just a fan of this. I don't know that it will catch on because it seems like the double entry races are really popular, but I'm with you. I love this. I love the idea that everybody's got one shot, that every round matters. Um, that I just, I liked it. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, and it, and it just was simpler. Um, I thought it was cool. Yeah, no doubt about it. Okay. King of the Flings. This was Thursday night prior to the big show. Um, we started it, I think, right after, uh, right, uh, right around the conclusion of that, that night's $30,000 race, which was won by Peach Pennington. And what the King of the Flings was, was uh, the only way that you could get into the event was to have won a previous fling event at some point, whether it was in Vegas, Bristol, Galat. I think they ended up with 37 entries in it. Obviously, it goes without saying, it was a who's who of the fling events, which essentially is a who's who of big dollar bracket racing. It was a stout field to say the least. I mean, the the, the oh, yeah. 500 plus car or the 400 plus cars that were on the grounds was a stout field to begin with. You took the elite from that. Um, and that race, not only was it impressive when you just looked through the entry list, it lived up to the hype, Jed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did, Logan. And and from an announcer's perspective, you know, it was so much fun to call because you you knew every pair that come up. Um no one wanted to no one wanted to look in the other lane and saw what they saw, whether you were in the left or the right or you were the first pair or the the eighteenth pair. Um it was just run after run after run with all stars in our sport pairing up against one another. And not only was it a very talented field, as you mentioned, but they performed at the level that you expect out of the names that were on that list. Uh, I mean, the, the, the actual on track racing was as good as I've witnessed. And Peter even said it behind me, you know, in 25 years, he, he was in awe of it, and twenty. He said, "In twenty-five years of racing, I've never seen anything like this. Just run after run after run. It was, I, it was really yeah, cool." I don't, I don't think I've ever, uh, I've ever seen anything quite at that level. And I realized that it was the perfect storm to do just that. But to your earlier point, I rolled around the corner for round two, and I had been running the left lane, and the right lane was stacked up, so I could have pulled in into the right and run whoever pulls up beside me. I'm like, now nah, I'm just going to stick in my lane, even though it paired me with John LaBoose Jr. And I could see that when I rounded the corner. So I pull up there, and Little John just gives me this look like, dude, what are you doing? And I'm like, come on, man. Like, I There's not a good option here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, no. And that was the – and the, the way that the whole thing went together, you've got the best of the best to begin with, and then it's a back-to-back race, and, it, and it's in the evening at Bristol. So nothing's changing. Like your car is going to run the same thing in the final as it did first round because it's all within an hour and a half. And then you put in the the 
it's not as if we weren't racing for anything, right? We're racing for a, a brand new, gorgeous uh, golf cart from Ivy Hutto, right? Probably a eight to ten thousand dollar prize, right? Super nice, and there it was to pay back beyond that. But I think what gets lost in it is there was no entry fee. Like it was a it was a free race to those of us that had, that had earned the spot. So there's it's not that there wasn't a reward; it's that there wasn't a risk. And you're the next day you're going to stage up for five hundred grand. Like it just felt like prime time. Okay, I'm racing against the best. I don't really have anything to lose. Like I'll be the first to tell you, I was set up perfect, and that seemed to be the consensus, and it showed, <laughs> right? Yes. The I, you called it all from start to finish. Obviously, the semifinal stand out, but it was just plum ridiculous. Uh, it was, um, you know, obviously the semifinal round that you're speaking of, where. Uh, both uh, Jeremy York and um, Tommy Cable were perfect dead too, and I think it was four ten thou or something like that. Uh, got a lot of attention, but the numbers were incredible, pretty much start to finish. You know, even in the final. I mean, obviously Tommy got credit for going perfect again in the final, and, and how uh, rare that is. But he laid down ten total in the final, and. He got some change back, Luke. Yes, he did. <laughs> you know, Kevin Thorpe was was not in awe of what was going on in the other lane, and and uh, took care of business. It was it was as incredible a display of racing as I've seen, you know, for that many rounds. It, it didn't just happen late where everybody was in the groove. It's it just happened that way from the get go. Mm-hmm. No, it was awesome. It was uh, it was really cool. Something that I hope to see duplicated at some point. But I think that that scene is going to be tough to to duplicate. Now you mentioned Kevin Thorpe, who ended up he is the king of the flings, right? Ended up winning that event and laid down, as you might assume, nasty yeah. runs to get there. Six of them, more than likely. Um, and that was uh, that was kind of a trend. Kevin Thorpe, Texan. If there was a state or a region that stood out at the Fall Fling, which is in Bristol, Tennessee, a long way from Texas, it was the state of Texas. Um, I don't know if domination is the right word because there was, what, uh, six or seven different events. Texas won three of them, but they were all right in a row. It was um, Peeps won that night's 30 grander. Uh, Peeps Pennington, uh, who obviously won the million earlier in the season, another guy that's had a heck of a season in two weekends. Um, and Peeps was probably, you know, I talked about Datus and, and the runs that he was making. Of all the winners from the weekend, Peeps probably made the most impressive laps. Like he was, he seemed dominant the night that he won. And even the following day in, in the in the 500K when he lost, like made sick, sick runs. Um, so Peeps wins. And then Kevin Thorpe wins the King of the Flings, another Texan. And then Hunter Patton, another Texan, wins the 500K. Um, and it wasn't just those guys. Like there was a lot of Texas guys that stood out. Uh, Philip Pennington went a ton of rounds all weekend. Um, Texas definitely uh, put forth a good effort. Oh yeah, um, they they showed it. Obviously, they do that quite often, but they showed that there's a a ton of talent. And I think Texas was fairly well represented in the field too. Um, so, you know, they they had the best of their best they're racing for the most part but um texas always seems to show up big at the big events um, they 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 definitely have uh 
I don't know what it is, Luke. Uh, it's it's a it's a very confident group too. Um, uh, you know, they're not listen, cocky. Listen, if you're from Texas, you are proud of being from Texas. Like <laughs> yeah. the beer cans in Texas have the state emblem on them. Like it ain't the same beer you buy in other states, right? <laughs> People are proud of being from Texas. I know everybody has a loyalty and allegiance to to where they're from, unless you're like me and you've moved around so much that you realize it's kind of all the same. But Texas takes the cake on that, as far as yeah, you damn right, I'm a Texan, right? Yeah, you know that's that's the way they come off, and it's not cocky. It's just they they believe in their ability, and <laughs> obviously it's for good reason. They they show up well. Yeah, so Texas was impressive, even despite uh, a forgettable performance from maybe the most notable uh, racer from Texas, Corey Galetti. I didn't realize this. Uh, JJ brought it up. Corey went O for the fling. Yeah, he did. He was uh, what it was. The first day was no uh, no buyback, and then uh, we had uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So he was O for seven. Yeah, um, and I mean, one of, if not the most talented young racers in the country, I think that speaks to the level of competition throughout. Um, and then again, like for, for Texas to be the, the state that we recognize and maybe the, when you say, hey, somebody from Texas did good, you know, like Peeps or Corey are probably the first one that come to mind. And it was all the other Texans carrying the flag, right? Yep, that is right. And, you know, I, uh, I think it it was probably about... 60 to 70 percent Corey lining up wrong and then seemingly when he lined up right it just didn't go the way that you know he didn't drive like he typically drives so uh, he, he just had a little bit of everything working against him what happened to him over the weekend what you're saying then is like what happens to me when I line up beside me at Tedesco <laughs> yeah like, if I have a 7,000th package, she'll have a 6,000th package. I hope she never goes red because I think if she did, I would hit the wall across the center line. I can't. <laughs> so that's that was Corey's week in a nutshell. All right, Jed. We buried the lead. We're, we're five bullet points in before we get to what everybody's really talking about. Can we get the drop, Mark? Can we put it in here? Let's do it. got to hear this. This week on What Everyone is Talking About. Jed, I assume that you were in the booth for most of this. You can probably sum this up in a neater, tidier way than I can. Johnny Zell, fourth round of Saturday's 30 Grander. Windlight came, comes on, and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, like, we were fortunate that uh, Motormania was doing a little something new with us. And we had a live screen in the announcer's booth. Uh, I mean, as live as it gets. And, you know, we were, you watch, but I would always turn to the screen because I would want to see, I could watch, it was a side view, so I could watch a little bit of the um, the finish line tactics uh, as when I turned to that screen, watch things going on. So that was really cool. We turned to that screen and it's like, Holy cow! This did this just car just break, and then the, the sparks start flying, and you know, then Joanne plays this uh, a replay or two so we can slow it down and see what's going on. And yeah, I mean, the car and he he had Cameron Fredrickson covered pretty well, and he was doing what Johnny does. He was scoop rocking it really good, and all of a sudden, 
the whole thing just right behind the driver's seat just sets down on the ground. And Both bottom frame rails broke, right? I did not get to see it up close, but from what I'm told, it was a clean, a clean break all the way across. And the car obviously just sat down on the ground. And I don't know, Luke, I, I should go back and watch the video to get a real, real good feel for it. But it looked like it probably skidded 300 feet. Sure. I mean, whatever it was to grind to a halt, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened. It just got out on the ground and ground itself to a halt. So, you know, so we're like, well, wow, extremely unfortunate. Cause you don't no, see that every day, right? Yeah. You don't see that every day and there's no, no break rule here. So Johnny's done. And then now you can kind of talk about it from there if you like, but. Uh, well, I'll say this, you say Johnny's done. And that would be my first thought because if that happened to me, I'd be done. And if that happened to 99% of us, we'd be done. Actually, I would have, I'd be cleaning out my race pants because I had no idea what just happened. And it scared the ever-loving bejesus <laughs> out of me, right? And I would gladly put my car away until somebody way smarter than I am had plenty of time to figure out, like, how are we going to fix this? So that that don't happen again. So that my butt is not that close to the racetrack, right? Exactly. But... Johnny Ezel is not in the 99%. So as soon as someone told me he thinks he can fix it, I had no doubt in my mind he could fix it. If there was anybody at the racetrack that could fix it, it's Johnny Ezel. And keep in mind, like I'm not that close with Johnny. Like, I haven't seen a lot of this in action, but I've just seen a couple of his at-track repairs. And I don't know that I know anybody that is better at what's the phrase like making chicken salad out of chicken doo doo. Like Johnny's a master, right? Like he he can MacGyver the heck out of it, right? And I thought if Johnny says he can fix it, I don't really have any doubt that he's going to try to make the next round. You know what I mean? Like I I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know what's going to go into it. I don't know how safe it's going to be. Like, but okay. I'm pretty confident that he can fix it. So that was my first take. I told somebody in the tower, I was in line to cash out my tab. When that happened, I'm like, he's going to try to fix that. So then we get word he's welding on it and he's trying to make the next round. Oh my, right? Now everybody's in. The way that I understand the story and keep in mind, I'm getting all of this secondhand and I don't really think the details much matter for the purpose of our conversation, Jed. But the way I understand it is Johnny gets it fixed to the point that he's comfortable running. And then the decision was made, like, hey, no, we're going to put a stop to this. We don't think it's safe for everyone else. The powers that be, in this case, obviously, Peter Biondo and Kyle Seipel, put the Knicks on that and said, no, 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 you're, you're not coming back. Like, you're out, right? Pretty much. Yeah, that's how it went. There was, a, there was more than those guys involved in the discussion. Sure. Track management was obviously involved in it as well. And it was... Look, it was as agonizing a call as those guys had to make all weekend. They wanted Johnny in the race, but he just he had to err on the side of caution with what you saw take place. So, you know, another thing that we should talk about is the fact that they went down just prior to the end of the previous round where that left 37 cars back in the show. So obviously there's not a ton of time between these rounds. You're, you're in the late rounds, so to speak. And I don't know if I should even tell this, but I think I, I think Pete's transparent enough that I could tell it. They, they even tried to slow things down just a little bit. That was the intent was, okay, Johnny's going to try to fix this. 
let's slow things down just a little so nothing gets rushed and we don't have a failure here. But even slow down, it was a monumental task to fix a car that broken in half. And, you know, even though complete confidence in Johnny's ability, like really how much, how well can the repair be done in that time frame? So that's when the decision was made that, you know, we just, we just don't feel comfortable with it because you can't unsee what your eyes see. And what their eyes saw was a car break in half and skid 300 or so feet shooting sparks. So obviously there's material. Every spark is a little less material than there was prior to the spark. And then I think there were some things said, Luke, and this was reported. I didn't hear it with my own ears, but it was reported that when a track official got to the car, it was said, it, that's the same place it broke the last time. And again, that is a report. That is not me reporting facts. That's just what I heard an official say. And then they felt like the welding was obviously rushed a little bit. And it was said that we couldn't get it all, couldn't weld it completely around because there's wiring and tubing and other things in the way that the car would have to be disassembled, so to speak. So I think there were a couple of factors that just left a, a, just burned a thought in everybody's head that, you know, we're just not comfortable. And in the interest of safety, they just decided, you know, it's probably best that, that we don't bring you back. Yeah, I think there's, I'll do my best to, to look at this from both angles. And the first is, again, like it's a testament to Johnny that we're even talking about this as a possibility. <laughs> yes. Because, as I said, 99% of us wouldn't even attempt to, to fix this in 20 or 30 minutes, much less have the, the wherewithal, the skill, the, the tooling, whatever it takes to make it happen. And, you know, apparently at least to his thought processes, like Johnny did. So from that aspect, you say, okay, well, Johnny built the car. Johnny fixed the car. Johnny's the one whose butt's going to be in the seat. If he's comfortable with it, let's roll. The other side of that is, okay, there's 36 other guys here that may have to stage up beside him. And as the event director, you have to be just as concerned for their safety as you do Johnny's. And so like the question is, should he have been allowed to run? I'll be completely honest. I have no idea. Like, I didn't see it. I didn't see the breakage i didn't see the fix and to be completely honest jed if i had i don't know what the hell i'm looking at so i don't think i'd be any more qualified to make that decision than i am without seeing it right now i don't know yeah. like i don't was it safe i don't know to me there's no way to know that is a completely a judgment call and that's where i'll just stand beside the idea that no matter how you shake this down, it's a judgment call. Like you have to make a determination for the safety of everyone involved in the race. And with that said, there is no, no one in this sport whose judgment I would trust more than Peter and Kyle. So I'll just assume that if they, when they made that decision, it's because they weren't comfortable with it. Like they weren't 100 percent sure that it was safe. And I trust their judgment. And so in that respect. This is to me is similar to the to the John LaBeouf situation at Indy that we talked about. Like if I was Johnny, 
I would feel like I've been done wrong here. Like they stripped me of an opportunity to win the race. And if I was another car in competition, like I could look at this in a couple of different ways because me personally, if Johnny says it's good, like I'd probably feel comfortable staging the other lane beside him, but I can't speak for the other 35, right? Sure. And if yeah. Joe Blow broke his car in half and welded it up in 20 minutes and rolled up beside me, I'm out, right? Exactly. And I so, think Johnny being who he is, Luke, and what everyone knows he's capable of is the only reason it got to the point of no doubt. here it is fixed and now you won't let me race. Had it been probably anyone else, you know, it would have been, look, you know, don't even don't even try this, but everyone knows how talented Johnny is and, and how capable he is. So I think that earned him somewhat of an opportunity, but you know, who among us has not thought, yeah, let's, let's try this. And then as the minutes roll by, you think, eh, wait a minute, let's, let's think about everything that could happen here. And Oh, you know, 100%. I have staged up with some stuff that never should have gone down a racetrack. Yeah. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us probably have done that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a common thing with, with drag racers, especially on a stage that big with a, with a really nice payday looming. And, you know, obviously Johnny was doing Johnny's thing and, and hitting the tree and rolling everybody through nicely. So sure. He felt like there was a real opportunity that he was going to collect that check. And, you know, the social media part of this, making it out to where it was a personal thing or, or some kind of tactic to remove him from the race so he couldn't win. That's about the silliest thing I've ever heard. Now, I'll, I'll be glad, and I, I'm sure you have seen it, uh, I'll be glad to debate with anyone about whether or not he should have got to run. I think the car would have went down the track because I don't think Johnny would have gotten in it if it didn't. But, you know, they did put a ratchet strap on it to hold it up for insurance. There were some things said prior to and during the repair that just burned a, an image in some important people's minds that probably led to the decision that they made. But I watched Peter Kyle, the track management, I watched him agonize over it like, you know, I really want him to be able to come back and do this. And if there was anything that was going to be done, like from a, for a result, a specific result intended, I mean that by you had a major event sponsor sitting on the buy at 37 cars that didn't get it because they didn't allow Johnny. They didn't even allow him to come back to the lanes to where the, the last car in could just stage and take a, a competition single. The buy run is a major event sponsor that they've had every event they've ever had. And they were forced to run because he didn't even get to come back to the lanes. So, you know, if you were, if you were trying to get tricky at all, you would have allowed him to come back and just pull up in the lane. So the guy gets a competition single and the, the major event sponsor gets a buy run. So it was made in the interest of safety. Sometimes we have to be kept safe from ourselves not mm -hmm. saying that was the case with johnny but johnny was going down that track yeah and we'll not go back to the racetrack without more repair being done okay so it was not the problem wasn't solved the problem was patched yeah i have zero issue with the decision and then 
And here's the thing: like, had they had they let him race and nothing happened, I would have zero to, zero issue with that decision either. It's a judgment call. But here's what you open yourself up to: like, let's say that he races, and let's say it breaks, and let's say he crashes. Like, then all of the same people that are behind their keyboard saying how unfair it was to Johnny would be behind their keyboard saying, I cannot believe the race promoters put everyone in harm's way. Oh, yeah. And then they'd have blood on their hands for it. You know what I mean? So you can't win in that situation. I have zero issue with the decision that was made. Like I said before, I trust the judgment of those race directors probably more so than anyone else I could imagine. With that said, removed from it now, and admittedly, I this never crossed my mind in the moment, but in retrospect... I think the only way that this situation could have been handled better would be to, whoa, okay, stop everything. And independently, because you couldn't do this in a group setting and allow peer pressure to take over, but independently, you call each of those 36 racers into a room one by one and say, let be completely honest. Are you comfortable? Like, go look at the car, whatever. Are you comfortable going down a racetrack beside that? And it's not majority rules. It's if there is one out of the 36 that says, no, I'm not, he's out. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know if that's fair either because you could probably do that pre-race in tech and you'd throw out some of the cars in the field. But to me, that's the the only way to really get a full gauge. And I would almost guarantee you that it wouldn't have been 36 yeses. No, it would not because uh, I was about to say they didn't have to do that because uh, the – some of the racers came to them immediately. Now, uh, you have to ask yourself, is some of it because he's JBR and, you know, he's capable of winning this thing and I've got an angle here to to keep him out of it, so I'm going to voice my opinion. And is some of it true concern for safety? You know, who knows what the, the motives, if any, were from the racers that came forward. But I will say this, there were as many that were for it as there were against it. So it wasn't like that swayed there. They didn't take that into consideration per se and say, that's the reason we're doing it. It was, it was strictly a safety call and, uh, you know, just a concern for what could possibly happen again, because of what everyone's eyes saw. All right. So Facebook tells you real quick, there's a lot of people I'll tell you real quick. There were several repairs made. There were, you know, several things that were welded at the track over the weekend. Do we stop them from racing too? Really? Really? How many cars broke in half, dragged themselves to a stop on the racetrack that had to be removed on a truck and had 20 minutes to repair it and get it welded back up and use ratchet strap for insurance? How many of those situations did we have? Uh, I've been racing since 1984. That's the second time I've seen an incident like this. And the first one didn't get fixed. The second one didn't get fixed. It got repaired. It got patched enough to go down the racetrack. But uh, they made the right call. And I hate it. I hate it for Johnny, but it was the right call. In the end, right call, wrong call, it's completely subjective. Like I say, it's it's similar to, in that regard, to what we talked about with John LaBeouf Jr. at Indy, and probably even more so because I don't know that there is a more polarizing figure in our 
form of this sport than Johnny Zell, right? Because if you are uh, a JBR hater, and there's plenty of them out there, then obviously you think he should be thrown out. Like if you because, and I think the reason for that is just. Again, I, I won't claim to be really close with Johnny, but I can tell you this much. I don't think he gives a damn what anybody thinks of him. And he kind of carries himself that way, which I actually have a lot of respect for. But sure. it could absolutely come off as aloof, cocky, whatever. And I think that's the way a lot of people see him. And that clouds your judgment of something like this. Well, absolutely, like, you know, he there's no way you should he should be back in because, again— it's all subjective and your judgment's clouded. On the flip side of that, if you are a Johnny Brackett racer fan or apologist to some extent, then you look at him as a as a hero of sorts because he's like a throwback to another generation. He literally does everything himself. Like that car that he drives, that he's won at the highest levels in, literally started as tubes on a rack. And Johnny made it into what it is and drives it to victory. Like there's a lot of people that look at that with immense respect, and they look at this and say, "Well, if he says it's good, who are we to doubt him? He should have been in the race." And there is nothing that you or I are going to say here that's going to sway anyone's opinions on this because it is so polarizing, and everybody, for the most part, has their heels dug in on one side of that or the other. That doesn't really have anything to do with the situation. It has to do with what they think of Johnny. I absolutely look at you know his his. Again, his talent and what people know he's capable of is the reason that it ever got to the point that it did. It was a lot of respect being shown for what they thought he was capable of pulling off. And for all intents and purposes, he pulled it off. He did the impossible. Uh, just it, it couldn't get in their comfort zone to allow it after a, a, a meeting of the minds. And, you know, again, there were outside influences that were trying to inject themselves into the decision, but I truly believed it. Peter Kyle and, and the, the staff there did not let that sway them from one side to the other. I think that after thinking about it and just having a discussion about, you know, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, it just made sense to tell Johnny, you know, it's probably not a good idea. And it was painful for him. It was very painful. Uh Moving on. I think we've exhausted the topic. Right. Next, next point I got on our bullet points, MVP, which is one of the coolest things that they do at the fall fling. At weekend's end, or week's end in this case, the powers that be get together and determine who was the most impressive performer from the event. This year, the, and it's arguably, like it, it's, uh, it's obviously not the richest prize of the weekend. I, I think you could argue it's the most prestigious. This year's MVP went to Brian Martell. And Brian, maybe more familiar to many of you as a superstock racer, he's had immense success in the NHRA superstock ranks, has kind of piddled more with the top ball bracket car than anything in recent years, put on a show throughout the weekend. He was runner-up to Jeremy Hancock in the $30,000 to win finale. That was the highlight of his weekend. But Brian had not only went a ton of rounds throughout the event, was really impressive in doing so, which I think is, is part of the criteria for the MVP award. Yeah, so, you know, the Todd's Extreme MVP is uh, is an award that... Now, get the sponsor in there. That's good stuff. That's yeah, the, yeah, that's the event sure. announcer coming out in. Yeah, I like that. Make okay. sure my, old, my old buddy TZ, I don't want him to get on me. So. so that award obviously rewards the racer that has the best performance over the the period of the week 
that were there. Any one particular, I mean, you know, it'd be easy to say that Hunter Patton was that guy or, you know, anyone that won one of the races, but um, I watched those guys again behind the scenes dive into run sheets. Uh, they'll print out they'll print out that particular racers day by day by day, look at the results, and they put a lot of time and effort into trying to figure out who was the actual MVP and had the best performance. And look, there were for this event there were several several candidates. And they just broke it down, basically round by round by round. And I think um, Ken Batchelor and and Martell faced somewhere late, maybe maybe around ten cars or so in the main event on Saturday evening. Ken Batchelor was in the running. Uh, Martell's victory over him didn't seal it per se, but it definitely started inching him forward, and then finally finishing with a runner-up spot put him over the top, but. There were many candidates, you know, Jake Woodring, poor old Jake. Uh, he hung around there because he was he he was told you're you're a serious contender, and he hung around a little bit later than he wanted to. And Martell kept clicking off those wind lights, so it just eased him out in front. But there were many many people that it could have gone to. Yeah, I mean, obviously Martell was very deserving of the MVP, but uh, to your point, a race like that, like it wasn't like he just ran over the field for four days. It, so that would be far from unanimous. Who else, from your perspective, stood out in addition to Ken Batchelor, in addition to uh, Jake Woodring, as uh, in contention for that MVP award late Saturday? Yeah, well, there were several, you know, some people that were showing up in the winner's circle, like Steve Law and, and the Peep Show, and, you know, Shane Maddox got. Uh, the semis of the 500 K and left the program there, but he turned on a lot of wind lights otherwise. And until he went out on Saturday, uh, I would say he was possibly in the the top two to three very easily. Double J Jeremy Jensen turned on a lot of wind lights. Philip Pennington, as you mentioned earlier, when you had the Texas discussion turned on a lot of wind lights and I've seen every MVP they've given away. This was probably the most difficult decision that they've had and, and probably produced the most paper for them to to look over and, and analyze. Yeah, which again, I think speaks to the, the level of competition and the parity at the event. Like there was nobody that ran this thing over. And obviously a number of really strong performances. But when you're looking at strong performances on that, that level, it's more of he lost with really good runs or, you know what I mean? Like he went four rounds each day. Like there was nobody that was down to eight cars every day at the event, far from it. You know, that um, is a component. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. That is a component to it that, you know, so, okay. So this guy went to E5 this day, this day, E6, this day, what beat him? What was the reason he got and and Martell, even when he lost, I think his worst bulb for the week was 23 and they were quite a bit better than that on average. Uh, lots of double O's, lots of real low teens. And his, I had the biggest bucket of bolts at the racetrack. I have no idea what my problem was, what my car's problem was. But he was on a 604 or 605 for three days. And it wasn't like he was on that and going out second round. He was on that and going out fifth and sixth round. So... Great equipment. Everything was working well for him. He was hitting the tree. And when he did get beat, he was getting beat by something 
pretty darn good. So that's what ultimately I think propelled him to the top. All right. Now for the part that isn't as fun. I've actually got, I tease this in the opener, some criticism of the fall fling event and it's it's not really all that major it's it's the last on our bullet point not because i was trying to bury it but because i think we'll probably spend the most time on it maybe outside of the jenny zell thing because how could you not spend a lot of time on that but here's my criticism the event uh, advertised as capped at 385 cars we've been through why that had to go over right uh there was uh some basically just an influx of demand at entry time and they literally broke the internet right we laugh about that all the time but the the website just couldn't keep up and i think at one point over 500 entries were accepted you could probably speak better to that Uh, but it was way way oversold so pete and kyle went back through made the decision that they weren't going to allow double entries of any sort and that weeded the field down significantly but it's still there's basically common knowledge coming in that the event was oversold and it was my understanding and to be completely honest like this may not have been said it may not have been implied it may have just completely been my assumption but it was my understanding and i wasn't the only one that just assumed that okay we're going to have more than 385 cars which is going to obviously mean more revenue for the event and that additional revenue is just going to be paid back out to the racers and in their defense they did add money to the purse uh, which is something that has been done repeatedly over the years at fling events. In this case, they added a, a round to the main event. The $500,000 race was supposed to begin payout with third round winners. I think third round winners got $750. They made it where second round winners got $500. That was a significant increase in purse. It's adding like $40,000 to the purse, right? Yep. And I actually personally got to take advantage of that because I did manage to win second round and did not manage to win third round. So that benefited <laughs> me. However, like when if you do the math on it, and again, this is I realize that there's more factors to this than I'm looking at, but just strict, uh, roughly it, it varied each day, but roughly 40 entries oversold that actually stage for first round in each day of the event. If you do the math on that for entries for all four days, and then you know the percentage of that that buys back, it gets over a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. It's $40,000. They added $40,000 to the purse. They brought in more than $100,000. So my thought was, okay, whoa, there was a mistake made in the entry process, right? And we took in a bunch more entries than we should have. And I have no problem with opening the field up beyond 385. Like, how do you tell people no that went through the process and entered? Zero problem with that. But obviously, brought in a lot more revenue. doesn't necessarily commensurate with the payout. So it almost feels like, okay, there was a mistake made. And we just benefited from it. And it just feels like they kind of profited from the mix-up, and that didn't feel right. But however you want to spin that, I think what maybe, I don't want to say disturbed me, because in the end, like it's not that big a deal. But I think what perplexed me more than anything was sort of the lack of transparency around it. Because, and again, this comes from the immense amount of respect that I have for the fling brand in general, like they always under promise and over deliver. And I just thought it was off brand, not only the decision, but the way that it was pitched in terms of transparency. Because even when they added the round money in, it was more along the lines of, this is just a a thank you to the racers. When a lot of the racers are sitting back saying, no wait, you took in a whole bunch more money 
of course you're going to pay a little bit more out, right? And it, I just, I think you are in a, a pit area that is surrounded, made up almost exclusively of really successful business people. You just shoot it straight. I understand that as promoter, like we're both been on that side of the fence too, Jed. Like it's a ton of work. Oh my gosh. At this level, a ton of risk. Like you deserve to be compensated for that. But I would have one appreciated and I think it would have gone over better, more transparency in the process. Like, look, we know that we took in more entries. Um, and here's what we're going to do about it. Rather than like it just seemed like, okay, we're gonna do this for the racers. And I don't know, like it just didn't sit well with me. And I know that I wasn't the only one that it didn't sit well with. Again, like I feel the need to to call this out because I don't think anyone's above criticism. And in saying that, I'll go back to what I said in the opening. This was my favorite event of the year. I think by and large, they do an awesome job. But I don't I, I didn't feel right going through this without calling this out because it just didn't seem to fit on brand. Now, Jed. You're on the inside. You've got more insight to this type of stuff than I do specific to this event. Give me the reason, like, why am I wrong? Well, Luke, first, I fully understand your position on this. And I had, I did have several, I say several, I had a few people come to me that had been on the calculator and said, you know, this is how much more they're making. And I said, no, let me explain a couple of things to you. And and you being a part-time promoter yourself, Luke, you, you get these things. But, you know, they knew well ahead of time that they had more than 385. So that requires a little more stuff. You know, typically they're going to have one person parking cars, and that's Sally. Well, they hired extra parking staff. They have over $75,000 worth of racer giveaways outside of the purse that typically has a guy or two. Well, now you got these banners and you got lots of moving parts, so you hire more people there. The point is, when they knew it was over, they added staff. So Bristol Dragway, that's not just a cut and dry, here's the number that you're going to pay us and write us a check for that now or write it Saturday evening, whatever you want to do. The more cars you have in an event, especially at Bristol Dragway, the more hours people are going to work, the more materials they're going to use, the more moving parts that they have to put in place as well. And I assure you, and this is, uh, this is <laughs> firsthand knowledge, that comes at a price. And it's not given away. They, when you ultimately, when you have more cars and you pay round money, you pay more people. Now, more people has paid you. I get it. But you pay more people and the payout increases. Sure. When you have round money and they have obviously round money, they did away with a buyback one day. Um, that math is pretty simple. Anybody with a calculator can figure that out. And uh, the $500 for the second round winner that was added was, uh, as you mentioned, a $40,000 decision. So there, it's not as it meets the eye, just 
profit. And I was told that a couple of times. Look how much more profit. No, wait a minute. That is not all profit. Was it was it as transparent as people wanted it? As you mentioned, probably not. You know, the fact remains that they're trying to get to a number of three eighty five. You you can't just sell three eighty five when you say we're going to be as as lenient as we can be with a refund policy. And if something happens, you know, if the if your toter breaks down or your aunt is sick or any of the things that you hear when someone calls and says, Hey, you know, Jed, not gonna make it, man. I, I know I've been looking forward to it, but it, and you don't go, Oh man, no, you can't don't do this to me. You say, Yeah, um, and I hate that for you, but I hope you can make it next year. Uh, we'll get that to you immediately. So you refund, everybody needs a refund. And what people don't know about pre-entry races, capped or not, there's going to be about 10% or so what you sell that says, I got to get out for one reason or another. So trying to get to a number 385, you're going to oversell it with the thought that I could have a bad weather forecast, uh, could have a run of people that have to get out for whatever reason, things pop up, weddings, graduation, whatever. So you always get these reasons. So they're going to oversell it on a consistent basis from the 385 number in hopes of landing between 360 and 400. This one got a little over because what happened on the internet, I mean, had they just went with what they sold, we would have had well over 500 there. And it did that in two minutes and 14 seconds or whatever it was. So they did everything they could possibly do to get it back down to a manageable number within reason of the target. So the 385 cap might look misleading to some people. And I get it. I really do. Now, I love Peter and Kyle, so that was even hard for me to say because they're like brothers to me. But it wasn't misleading. It, it may just be the way it's worded. But the 385 is more of a target than an absolute cap. And, and I think Peter knows that that probably needs to be looked at and adjusted. Maybe the wording, maybe the number, what have you. But trying to make the event work in that 360 to 400 range. And this one, while it looks way, way out of bounds to some, and there were reports that there were 460 there, that never happened. I think the number was 428, Luke. But while it looks out of bounds to some people, it wasn't nearly what it looked like. And those guys did not just take every dollar over 385 that come in and take it to the bank, I assure you. It no, and I get that. And and it's one of those things like nobody ever talks about if that race falls to 350 cars and they take a $100,000 bath, right? I mean, that's the sure. that that's the swing in it. And I understand that and that that's a risk that's in it. It just seems like and again, uh, and, and I I realize too that there's more that goes into it than meets the eye. It just feels as though they were able to profit from a mistake. I, again, I think what bothers me more than anything was the was the lack of transparency. Now, in their defense, if this same flyer was released 
exact same to a T. And the only change is saying that the cap for entries instead of 385 is 425. Everybody that was there enters. Like it changes nothing. It's just simply the way that it's worded on the flyer. And then everybody's fine with this. So to your point, maybe it is as simple as semantics and you set that quote unquote cap, however many entries higher than, you know, the actual like profit projection for the event. And that way, if you cap it at 425 and you get 380, like everybody's cool and nobody's getting hurt and nobody's upset. And if you get 425, Nobody's upset about that either. Like may, maybe the answer is really that simple. Uh, again, the trick and what I think they did an excellent job of was keeping the event manageable in terms of like it 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 wasn't a marathon. It wasn't 500 plus cars. And I think the single entry had a lot to do with that because you're never waiting on someone to cool a car or swap cars or something like that in later rounds. So that absolutely like checked all the boxes. Again, I just... It was the first time that I've ever really questioned anything that Peter and Kyle did. And for that alone, like it just seemed a little bit off-brand and off-putting to me. And I guess that, to some extent, gets me to the last point on this that I wanted to make. And this isn't necessarily anything to do with, with this decision specifically or this event. But I finally, really for the first time, got the feel that there is like this growing division between and maybe it's not necessarily between the fling and sfg maybe it, it almost feels like it's between sfg and everybody else but we've made no bones about like we're huge supporters of peter and kyle right and and everything that they do i still think that they put on the best event and i don't think it's close but with that said that's a subjective opinion. We get back into that objective versus subjective thing. I heard a lot this weekend from like avid supporters of SFG. And for the first time in th that I can remember, like I feel like there is a division there. And it speaks to the point that there are so many races now and so many big dollar races available that we can pick and choose. You know, like I can choose to go to the flings and someone else can choose to go to the SFG races and not cross over at all. And they'll probably both be successful. It's just, it was interesting to see that division and basically hear like not one, not two, several people that were as adamant in their defense for SFG and, and maybe their disappointment in the spring fling as a lot of people I know feel the opposite direction. Like, it's just interesting, and I think it speaks to where we're at in big dollar bracket racing. And I guess either side's wrong. It's just, uh, it was it was kind of eye-opening to me. Yeah, there's definitely some, um, there's some definitely some of that out there, Luke. And, you know, I don't know why it's created. You know, I, I think we look at these events, and we want them to be somewhat cookie-cutter. And when it's different from what we like or want or have experienced when we go somewhere and it's a little bit different from that we yeah. we tend to tear it down a little bit mm -hmm. and you know it, i think it's very easy to look at a flyer and figure out what the event's going to be like you know you don't always know car counts and those things but you can look at a flyer and tell about what to expect and i think everybody knows what they should expect that SFG event, and I think they get exactly what they expect. You know, it's typically going to be some 
huge car counts and it's going to be uh, run at you know great facilities in the wee hours of the morning and they love what they're going to and obviously there's monster paydays that, that Kyle Riley's offering up and he's paying out every penny of it so uh, until that changes he's going to have a large number of racers that support him Peter and Kyle do it a different way not to say one's better than the other but you know it's definitely something I like you know, the way they do it and I think there's a large number of racers that support that obviously with the car counts that both are getting there's going to be plenty of crossover there's plenty of racers that are doing both and I think it's natural as humans to say well, I like this over that and that over this but for the most part uh, I think racers appreciate both of those promoters or those groups of promoters and and what they're offering uh, on a on a yearly basis and it's only seemingly getting better so yeah, no, there's probably more in the middle than there is on either side. I just think it, it kind of amplifies to me that there are benefits and or attractions to every race and and every series. And that, that at the same time, like I think that they all on some level have their warts. And it really comes down to what is important to you as a racer, as a customer, as to where you're going to go spend your money. And everybody has has the freedom to, to make that decision. I have no issue with that. Uh, Real quick, ahead. Luke, I, want, I do want to say that there was uh, quite a bit of scuttlebutt over the issue with the left lane uh, that there were several, uh, a few, not several, a few dragsters that appeared to deep stage. And, you know, I, I not braggadocious but i recognized it immediately the first time i saw it and it was uh i think uh, marty williams that that did it but his car looked like a deep stage let's go makes the run he's like 50 something green and he goes 12th out under so I, I went to kyle and i said hey check this out because that's something ain't right i mean he, it looked like he deep staged but if he lets go anywhere near on time, he's 50-something red, not 50-something green, and he don't break out 12,000. So he immediately starts pulling up incrementals, said, no, all his incrementals are right. He said it, 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 something didn't go right. And then it happened a couple more times, and it was very random, like just certain dragsters with V-Series, not all of them because there were, you know, there were 200 of them there were V-Series, but so – there was a lot of scuttlebutt about them going out and doing what they did to make that repair and, and fix it. So just want people to know there were obviously some people that come to me that don't really understand the timing system and how it works and the equipment, because there was a huge concern about, well, I'm not going over there. Now I'm not going in the left lane. They are, they monkeying with those lights and all that up. Well, so you could put the pre-stage beam up on the mountain in the grandstands. And if the driver drives through it, as long as the stage beam don't move, as you know, everything's the same. Now, the pre-stage beam adjustment will determine how long it takes you to get staged, but it will not affect ETs. The only thing that's going to affect that is the stage beam. We all know the pre-stage beam is just a warning, letting you know you're close. So there were people that 
seemingly had concern over that for the rest of the weekend. But I want to assure everybody, nothing moved but the pre-stage. And nothing was affected. Yeah, I can attest to that personally. Like, I was in the left lane all that day, both prior to that and after that. And my understanding is the only thing that was moved was pre-stage, and that's certainly what my time slip show. I will say that in the moment, Jed, I was a little bit concerned because I had no idea how we were going to determine that everything was the same. AJ wasn't there. (laughs) AJ, yeah, AJ's going to get on me about that. (laughs) I can't take credit for that. It was actually another <laughs> racer who I'll remain nameless that brought that up at the time, and I got such a good chuckle out of it that I had to share it here. Uh, if that went over your head, go back about four episodes, and we, we had a little bit of fun with AJ there. Bless his heart. Uh, <laughs> all right, Big Jen. Let's go away. Well, maybe go away from the fling just a little bit. This week's BTE, Who's Hot? He's on fire! It's time for Who's Hot in Sportsman Drag Racing. BT staff is selected directly from the racing community. From sales to manufacturing, each member of their staff is a performance enthusiast. With multiple world championships and number one qualifiers, they offer expert professional technical advice for your racing operation. See our staff directory. Our commitment to your success is part of our own. So, Luke... Uh, there is a very hot driver that had a lot on the line uh, recently and uh, obviously performed very well he, to be the BT who's hot. Why don't you tell us about him? Jed, I always like I always thought I was the one that just liked to hear myself talk. Look, we're at like an hour and a half into this. We're, we're all over it. And Mark just said, hey, we don't need to read that. I got it on file. And you just read it. Oh, really? So I, that's cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was, not, I was not paying attention at all. We, we got a new who's hot read in there. I like it. Now, um, for all the discussion that we've had about the fling, and I think we've exhausted everything on the fling, for this week's PT who's hot, we're actually going to go away from Bristol because it had been easy to give it to Hunter Patton. It had been easy to give it to Peeps Bennington. Um, but like we said earlier, there was no one that just dominated the fling from start to finish by any means. Level of competition was too difficult. So we went in a little bit different direction. And I got to say, we got an honorable mention here, a shout out for uh, Footbreaker, Big Jed. This would be close to your heart. While we were all in Bristol, one Chad Dotson was busy running the table at Greer Dragway, took win and runner up in their annual $5,000 to win Footbreak race. That's impressive, but not quite impressive enough to get the nod this week we're actually going to go back in time one week to uh the nhra national event in maple grove pennsylvania where one joe santangelo got the win in stock eliminator and typically jed we give our who's hot award to someone who's won multiple events or wins multiple events in one day or like chad dotson did runs themselves in the final joe didn't do that joe won uh, stock eliminator at the maple grove national event Obviously impressive in and of itself. National events are hard to win. Uh, But this one, a little bit more impressive than most for this simple reason. Uh, If you go back to our previous discussion uh, about the NHRA points chase, uh, you'll remember that Joe Santangelo was leading both in stock and super stock and was in a pretty strong position to potentially win both world championships, a la Scotty Richardson, a la Jeff Strickland, a la Justin Lamb. Um, and between that recording and now, 
uh, Joe had been to a bunch of races and per his standards um, had not achieved excellent results. Like his championship hopes looked to be floundering. And Maple Grove was the last event at which he could claim points this season. And essentially, uh, specifically in Stock Eliminator, anything short of a win, and I don't know if you could say you necessarily would have eliminated him from national event, national championship comp- uh, contention, but it certainly would have looked pretty bleak. And who knows? There are a lot of awesome contenders waiting in the wings. This may not hold up. But for Joe Santangelo to have any chance, realistically, of winning the national championship, he had to win that race. And guess what Joe Santangelo did? He went out and won that race, which actually is uh, reminiscent of how Joe Santangelo won the Stock Eliminator World Championship, the trophy that sits on his mantle from several years ago. Forgive me, I don't know the exact year. But Joe went to the divisional event in las vegas needing to win the race and at that point that's the last race of the year you know what's on the table you know what you have to do just intentionally won that race um so it would be fitting and epic um if this year's chase comes down in a similar fashion granted it's not as dramatic as when vegas or winning pomona when everybody knows what has to happen but i'm just telling you from looking at the points if joe santangelo was going to win the world championship he had to win that race Coming out and won that race. Now, another interesting note from that, Big Jed, is the year that Joe Santangelo ran the table at Vegas to win the championship, he robbed Jody Lang of said championship. I was just looking at the points. Guess who's number two behind Joe Santangelo this year? Mm, it's Jody Lang. It is Jody Lang on the heels of a divisional win at Woodburn not long ago. Uh, I believe it was last weekend. And now Jody goes back to the scene of the crime, I assume that the last national event at which he can earn points will be at Las Vegas. Jody's improving a second-round loss. Jody Lang has to make the final round to overtake Joe Santangelo. How fitting would it be if the tables were turned? It's teed up. It, uh, it will be interesting, no doubt. Yeah, it's uh, something he's very capable of doing, too, especially a second-round loss that he's improving on. So... That'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Look forward to hearing more about that. But uh, kudos to Joe Santangelo. This this young man just gets it done. Uh, very capable. Obviously has done his share of winning. And with that kind of pressure on you and to go to Maple Grove and do it, where that's a hotbed for talented stalker racers. I mean, that, that part of the country is just full of them. So that probably had its share of obstacles serious obstacles to overcome and he did it so well done by uh by joe and congratulations on being the btu's hot and shout out to my boy chad dotson the lizard uh, that's uh that's a heck of an accomplishment on in his own right to, to win and run her up five grander on the bottom so great job lizard proud of you bud I want to thank everybody for tuning in to make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available. Subscribe. And you can do that on 
Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. BTE is one of a few full-service transmission companies with a full array of manufacturing and testing capabilities. Their in-house CNC facility is paired with an extensive collection of gear hobbing and shaping machines to produce any high-performance driveline product. From, from inception, BTE's racing products are designed, prototyped, field-tested, produced, inspected, and even shipped by real racers. Just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, their warehouse and manufacturing facility in Mount Pleasant, Mississippi, is stocked with thousands of parts and centrally located in the United States for fast delivery anywhere. Are you ready to take your on-track game to the next level? This is Bracket Racing Elite is the place to do that. For the high achiever not willing to settle for mediocre results, Elite teaches you how to prepare off the track and how to execute on the track, lap after lap after lap. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, you get access to our all-star cast of instructors. That is myself, five-time NHRA world champion Justin Lamb, two-time world champion Kevin Brannon. And it's not just the instructors. Within Elite, you get access to a community of literally hundreds of racers similar to you, that are striving to become the best version of themselves on the racetrack. You get unlimited access to all of the resources, all of the trainings available on thisisbracketracing.com, in addition to uh, the community aspect of This Is Bracket Racing Elite. If it sounds awesome, that's because it is. You can go to thisisbracketracing.com and see testimonials from some of our current members and see how far they have come since joining This Is Bracket Racing Elite. The only downfall for you right now today, the doors to This Is Bracket Racing Elite are not open. We open them only twice a year due to immense demand to join our community. The good news is that you can join the waiting list and be the first to know when we open the doors to This Is Bracket Racing Elite, when we accept new members. You can do that at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Uh, this week's What's on Tap is actually a race that is well off in the distance, but arguably the most anticipated race on the 2020 schedule. It is the Great American Bracket Race, guaranteed million set to happen at Memphis International Raceway Memorial Day weekend 2020. The reason that we bring it up today is uh, I don't know that we'll record uh, where Big Jed, you and I are both on the same show between now and Friday, October the 11th. And Friday, the October, uh, Friday, October the 11th uh, is when pre-entry opens for the Great American Bracket Race, guaranteed million. Friday, October the 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern. The reason that I suggest those of you who are interested take note of that, I just have this feeling, maybe I'm wrong, I have this feeling that this is going to be similar to the Fall Fling in terms of these entries are going to be difficult to come by. I expect this to sell out really quickly. So mark your calendars, uh, 6 o'clock Central Time in the p.m., um, October 11th, which is a Friday, entry will open for the Great American Bracket Race, guaranteed million. 
Yeah, look, I agree. I think it's going to sell out uh, pretty quickly, and uh, it is, um, you know, it is uh, an event that a lot of people are looking forward to uh, for many different reasons. But the the word on the street is that this is not something everybody knows, but there's going to be some really cool giveaways for people that enter and show up to race. Uh, I think Britt and Galen and the staff have some things tucked back that they haven't uh, let out yet, and one of them is going to be the, these cool giveaways that they've got for folks. So definitely want to be paying attention to that deadline, guys, and get in as quickly as you can and expect uh, another quality top-notch event with some extra cool stuff around it from the guys at the Great American Bracket Race. Yeah, to your point, Jed, I, I got the opportunity to sit down with Britt for a little while um, last weekend at the Fling, and he, again, like it's not like I'm withholding information here. He was pretty guarded about some things, but there's a lot more to this race than they have released. I'm anxious to hear the details of specifically the television package uh, and everything that goes along with this. Like I, I know that there is a method to the madness. Britt has a plan here. Um, and I don't know exactly what it includes to be fully transparent, but I, I just have this feeling that it's going to be really, really awesome. Um, and I got the impression in talking to him, he's like, you know, I've talked to a few people that, uh, you know, aren't really sure that this race is going to happen. And if it, if it doesn't sell out immediately and things like that. And I mean, he just kind of looked me in the eye and was like, I don't care if a hundred people in it, we're having it. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really confident in saying like, this thing's going to happen. And I just, again, I may be reading it wrong. I have a feeling, well, I'll just say this. I'm going to be in front of my computer at 6 p.m. Central to make sure that my wife and I have a spot in this race. I think it's going to go quick. Yeah, I agree. Looking forward to it myself. So, guys, that wraps up this episode of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Uh, a lot of fun uh, to sit and chat with you about it. Uh, definitely want to thank the great folks at BTE and um, Luke. Shout out time. How are you feeling about shouts right now? Unprepared. Um, I'm completely off the cuff. I, I got so caught into our everything fling discussion that I haven't been keeping notes. I'll go off the cuff. Feel free to jump in, Big Jed. We'll, we'll make the shout out a team effort today. Okay, I will awesome. shout out. I got to shout out AJ Ash. <laughs> Love you, AJ. <laughs> I got to shout out Johnny Bracket Racer. It just. For yeah. being in the middle of the firestorm, probably none of his own doing, but there's nothing yeah. that Johnny does that won't be in the middle of the firestorm. Um, let's see. We could shout out Texas, oh, the whole yeah. state, and, and Coors Light for having Texas on the cans. I think it was Coors Light. <laughs> Texas beer. Uh, yeah. Where, where are we going, Jed? Who else? Who, who'd I miss? A shout out to the lizard. The lizard. And Who's all lizard? lizards. I definitely want to shout out to those guys. Um, shout out to Ratchet Straps. <laughs> shout out to Jad Dotson and Lizards Everywhere. Uh, Luke, there, while there's plenty more that we could shout out, I want to go in a little different direction here to wrap this up. So we don't get producer Mark uh, on here very often to to let people hear his voice. And uh, he wants no part of it. He he really just would rather stay behind the scenes. But someone very special in producer Mark's family did something very special 
over the weekend while we were out racing for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it, it's a really cool story. So, producer Mark, if I could get you to to unmute, wake up, and and come in here to chat with us for just a second, why don't you give this shout out and tell what happened in your family over the weekend at the races? <clears throat> well, I got to give a shout out to my mom, Amy Romeo. She won the 2019 IHRA Division Three Sportsman Championship at Keystone Raceway Park over the weekend, racing for Team Keystone. Um, she's a 61-year-old grandma of five, mother of, mother of two, and uh, husband of uh, or wife of a of a racer. So that the whole entire family, we had five Romeos in the bracket finals this year. So um, she was able to come out on top of the sportsman class where she's just happy racing. She's won two championships and numerous races and she's just happy racing there. She really has no desire to race in any other class and she drives her car to the track every week and she was able to pull it off, which was pretty big for her. Wow. What a heck of an accomplishment. 61 years old, Mark. Yeah. What's her weapon of choice? What, what was she racing in the sportsman class? She has her 1973 Pontiac Ventura. That um, that's the car that started it all for all of us. So she, really? it's the first car we we built that car in two thousand one, I believe, and it, that's been the only that was the, that was the first Romeo race car, and, and she still races it. Wow! And you, we talked off air before we got going. You were waiting to go into the water box for the semis of mod which you exited the program there in the semis, but watching your mom win a bracket finals in sportsman right in front of you, I mean, how did you even get the car cranked? <clears throat> well, it was, it was a pretty surreal moment. I mean, I was, I was actually standing outside the car. I was right by the, by the, by the front fender and I watched her go down and I, 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 she won and the wind light came on and I was, I was jumping and hollering and everything else. And I went and hugged my brother and my dad and, um, came back over to my car relatively quickly. Cause I knew they were ready. They were ready to go. I don't, there wasn't a whole lot of time for that celebration. And, uh, and my opponent even, and, and his buddies, they all congratulate. I mean, it was, it was a crazy, it was just a crazy moment. And, and then I just, I, you know, I had to get my, my thinking cap back on there and, and get in the car and it didn't really work out, but, uh, it didn't matter. It really, it really didn't make that much difference cause it was so cool for her. Yeah. What a cool moment. So shout out Miss Romeo, heck of an accomplishment. We're all super proud of you. And just, uh, man, that, that had been amazing feeling. One other thing I want to mention is between every one of her rounds, she was really pretty much the only person. I mean, I don't, you guys have probably been a part of some bracket finals at some point, and you, they they want the teams in the stands to cheer for their teammates, you know, and uh, she was making it back to the stands every single time, even when she was still in, to cheer for me and and other Keystone teammates that were in. She would do her cheering, she would shake her cowbell. They'd call sportsmen. She'd run right back down and go and go get her car and go back to the lanes. It was it was. She's like Keystone's number one supporter. It was incredible. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Who, who can't use more cowbell in their life? So that's uh, that's really cool. Again, congratulations, Miss Romeo. Heck of an accomplishment, and uh, enjoy it. You obviously earned it. So, 
that uh, that wraps up, guys. Be sure to tell us what you think. You can message us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page, or you can at either Luke or myself on the Twitter. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I, and I am at JP11X. Happy racing to you. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you again soon. couple more quick. I'll shout out. Are we still recording, Mark? <laughs> yes. All right, we're good. Keep going. I'm going to shout out, I'm gonna shout out Brittany Force. Making a, a, a pleasantly surprising Luke, appearance Luke, at the flame. What are Great you doing? Brittany Force was at the flame. That was awesome. I, I know that. <laughs> okay, so shouts to her. Shouts to uh, to Corey Galetti because like we singled you out for not winning around, but you should take that as a compliment because how many people could go to an event like that, not win around, and that's a story. That's how good Corey Galetti is. So shouts to Corey and Brittany and Mark for and Mark's mom. But more so, well, maybe not more so, but also to Mark for getting his door blown off. Wish we could have got that story on the air. <laughs> oh my goodness! And but yeah, shouts to mom. I feel like I feel like Amy's like a mother-in-law to us, Jed. Yes, no doubt. Yeah, podcast okay. mom-in-law. So awesome work. All right, I'm done. You can stop now. <laughs> Great ending. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it. I am already winning it for breaking in anything. Bottom bobbing for a 10. I'm rolling in the cutty, switching feet like Jerry Pennington. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer, led by knowledgeable professionals. Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors, and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action. Take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.